Hey everyone, this is Connor. Before we get started, I just want to encourage you to check out our Patreon, patreon.com slash podsidepicnic. If you become a patron, you'll get access to multiple exclusive episodes every month. And you can also join our patrons-only Discord chat, where Pete and I talk informally with the Podside Picnic community. So if you like the show, go ahead and check us out at patreon.com slash podsidepicnic. Thanks. There was a time when energy was a dirty word, when turning on your lights was a hard choice. Cities in brownout, food shortages, cars burning fuel to run. But that was the past. Where are we now? How did we make the world so much better? Make deserts bloom. Right now, we're at the largest producer of fusion energy in the world. The energy of the sun, trapped in rock, harvested by machine from the far side of the moon. Today, we deliver enough clean-burning helium-3 to supply the energy needs of nearly 70% of the planet. Who'd have thought all the energy we ever needed right above our heads? The power of the moon. The power of our future. Welcome back to Podside Picnic. As usual, I am joined by your favorite co-host, Pete. And today, we have a very special guest, very, very special in this case. His name is Adam Wrench, and he is a writer. He is a co-host of the Stop Rewind podcast, and he has many other things. But in particular, I want to say he is the reason that our audio got a lot better on this show. He is uh, the editor and producer of our audio for Podside Picnic, and for that, we are forever in his debt. Adam, thank you so much for joining us, man. Thank you for having me. It's good to finally, uh, you know, talk to you. I, I listen to yeah, you guys no, all the time, so. Yeah, that's true. I mean, I, I listen to your show, but like, we've never actually had a conversation. Yeah, yeah, that is kind of, that is kind of a strange, the way we set this up is like you guys just send me the files and then I edit everything and we kind of just communicate either through Twitter DMs or through email, so. Yeah, yeah. So like you've heard me converse and I've heard you, but it's like we're, a, we're at a lunch table where we're not allowed to interact. Yeah. It's very weird. <laughs> this is a moment, for those of you who care about those things, of parasocial relationships becoming truly social. It's a beautiful thing to see in the year of our Lord, 2019. <laughs> and I, I just want to apologize to Adam also because you've been subjected to all of our audio in a way that no one else has. Probably even Pete and I have not spent as much time listening to our own show as you have. So thank you for everything you've done. Oh, uh, it's no big deal. I like, I, you know, I like, I like the podcast. So it's, it's, it's fun to listen to. So you make it easy. That warms my heart. Thanks, man. <laughs> well, that seems like a good lead in if anything does. Uh, so... <laughs> Um, Adam, uh, you picked uh, Moon for us to watch together. Uh, why Moon? Um, well, so I should say uh, up front, I'm not like a big sci-fi person. Um, I don't really have like an extensive knowledge of of like sci-fi, um, of the sci-fi genre. But um, Moon, I saw Moon, I think shortly after it came out. I was living in Ohio. Um, I had come home from New York after the the financial crisis 
and I was living with my mother. It was it was a very depressing time actually, and I was I was taking care of my my best friend Gabe who had uh, cystic fibrosis, and he needed a double lung transplant. And so, and he was a big movie buff, and he was like, "Hey, let's let's watch this movie Moon." It was directed by David Bowie's son, and uh, and I was like, "All right, yeah, sure," you know, and um, and I. I it was my introduction to um, Sam Rockwell as well as a, as an actor who I think is fantastic in in, in the movie, um, but the the film itself I think is a fascinating you know because it comes out in two thousand nine right after the crisis, and it's dealing it's a very sort of prescient um, examination of of a lot of the kind of problems that we've been dealing with since then, which is, are, you know, the question of, of natural resources, um, particularly um, in the face of, of climate change. So the, the, you know, the basic premise of Moon is that Sam Rockwell is this guy working for Lunar Industries who, who are mining this resource on the dark side of the moon. I think it's helium. Um, and it's producing- It's helium-3. You use it for fusion- and it actually, it, it makes scientific sense. There is helium-3 on, on the moon. Oh, okay. I didn't know that. Yeah, I mean, I, I know that the film was praised for its scientific accuracy in a lot of ways, but I wasn't sure uh, where where that was all kind of coming into play. But, um, you know, it, it, it's an interesting kind of, it's kind of solving the problem of how can we sort of live life as we live it now without having to sort of drastically change our patterns of consumption production. Well, if we if we sort of find this resource on the moon that's producing all of our energy, well, then you know, sort of problem solved. Um, but of course, you know, the film has the other element, uh, which is that um, you know Sam Rockwell's character um, is a is a clone, and he discovers his that he is a clone. And so the the film is also, I think, in a less conceptually kind of coherent way, trying to grapple with um, the problem of of like labor and the exploitation of labor and, you know, how do we, how do we sort of exploit labor to the point without, you know, because in, in, in under capitalism, capitalists are sort of limited by, by, by the need to, for people to be able to sort of reproduce their means of subsistence. So we have to pay our bills. We have to, you know, ha- ha- pay for food, et cetera, et cetera. And, but of course, if we can just clone people and make them kind of machines, although he's not really a machine. Um, so that's, that's, we can maybe talk more about that, but I think that that's one another thing that the film is doing that's kind of interesting, which is kind of trying to, to deal with that that other problem. So I'm I'm curious here, actually. I want to fast on to one thing you said. So everything you said that was very interesting. Um, I have so many questions. First, I want to ask you when you say that this film is not as conceptually coherent around issues of labor. Uh, what do you mean in particular? It was sort of the question would sort of be whether or not. We think of uh, Sam Rockwell's characters and the clones as people or as machines, and I'm I'm sort of approaching this from a kind of classical Marxist sense, which is that, you know, for Marx, machines can't really produce surplus because they're 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 what's called constant capital, and their value gets kind of absorbed into the into the product, um, and it's only variable labor, which is produced by humans, that is able to produce value that exceeds what goes into it, um, and so if we think of them as machines, then the question is like, well, how are they producing value? I guess you could say. Um, but if they're humans, which maybe they are because they're clones and they seem to have a kind of awareness of themselves that, um, we would characterize as 
human. Um, well then that's, that's a whole other, that's a whole other thing. Um, but it is interesting because it's like, you know, the, the film does at one point he explicitly states, well, why pay to train people? You know, why go through the cost of trying to train people for this job? If you can just train one person and then make clones who all remember already how to do it. Um, so in that sense, you know, it, it, I, I guess when I say it's conceptually incoherent, I, I'm just quite, I'm not quite certain how to think of it. You know, maybe the incoherence is on my own part of like, I'm not quite certain, you know, which, which way I want to think about how, how the clones are functioning within this kind of system. Does that make sense? Yeah, it does. Uh, I think it's it's left intentionally ambiguous, um, sort of, even to the very end, uh, Sam Rockwell's character also named Sam, Sam Bell, I believe, is, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, is which is interesting, is arguing with Gertie, the artificial intelligence robot voiced by Kevin Spacey, um, very creepily, uh, who um, is, they're already arguing at the end about, because Gertie sort of lets slip, like, yeah, don't worry, once you are all, not to spoil, I don't want to spoil too much here, but like, uh, you know, the next Sam clone and I will get back to our programming, and, and Sam Bell is like, we're not, we're not machines, Gertie. We're people. And it's it's not even clear if he also means Gertie or like what he's saying there, but it's like there's a constant argument in this film that does not get resolved about that, which is interesting. Um, and also there's the the further question that we know in the universe of this film, as far as the evidence that we have, that the Sam Bell is a clone of a real person who did exist on Earth and that the transplanted fake memories that he has of his wife and daughter are based on a real family that, that, that they do get into contact with. So it's all very complicated. Yeah. Yeah, it's very, um, I don't know, go ahead. I'm, I'm going to collect my thoughts. Okay, well, uh, what's interesting about this to me is uh, you went you went straight to War of the Clones people, which is something that I've, I felt like I could resolve pretty easily. Like, they have individual wants and needs. They, I mean, it's like making a test tube baby or anything else that, like, they're human. Gertie's the one that fascinates me. Yeah, Gertie is interesting because he far exceeds anything that I think we can do now in terms of artificial intelligence. I mean, I'm not up to speed on terms of artificial intelligence, but his, his yeah, ability... Yeah, artificial intelligence doesn't really exist. That's my take. Sorry, keep going. Okay, okay, yeah, sure, <laughs> sure. But I mean, you know, so the sort of... Cr the question of like, are we talking to a, a real person or an automated uh, response system? Like when you do the Google, like a chat with like a, you know, a service company or something like AT&T or any of these mega corporations um, and how they've trained computers to sort of respond in quote unquote human like ways. And, but Gertie's ability to converse with Sam far exceeds anything I think a computer system can do because it's spontaneous and it's, um, he's able to sort of respond, uh, to visual cues as well. And, um, that I think is also interesting because, you know, the way they solve the problem of like making the robot kind of human like is they just do like the smiley face emoji on the screen, which is, in, a, in a, a, a funny way, a kind of, uh, I think it's an interesting sort of commentary on the way that we now deal with emotions often online, which is like, we can't, you know, rather than expressing a, a certain kind of emotion in any sort of authentic way, we, we, 
we use like visual iconography that somehow distances ourselves from our emotions. And you kind of see that literalized with his little sad, like that, you know, Sam will say something sad and then Gertie's face will do like the cry face emoji or something. I mean, it's kind of funny, but it's also, I think, very interesting. Yeah, I, I thought about that a lot too. Uh, one, one of the things, like I should probably watch it again. And what I want to do is how much of that is like the Gertie program looking for an appropriate response and projecting it and how much of it is sort of a thermometer expressing what's really going on in Gertie. And I, I mean, I think the answer is you can't really tell, but I kept wanting to humanize it as much as possible. And so, I mean, probably because Gertie, uh, spoiler everyone, uh, uh, Gertie resolved a conflict by siding with the the clones against the company, which I mean, makes him extraordinary to me. He does. And, and, and I think that's a very interesting sort of moment in the film. I mean, I, you know, there were a lot of different ways I think you can, you can kind of understand this film. And one of them is actually, I think to get back to the kind of question of labor is that the film sort of stages a kind of class conflict between workers and bosses, because there are these shadowy figures Um, I mean, so first off, the framing device of the film is very interesting because it opens up with a kind of promotional video for Lunar Industries and then it goes into into the into the film. And then at the end, you get this brief sort of indication that like stockholder, the stocks in the the company are falling, et cetera, et cetera. So the company's kind of going under based on their labor practices. Um, And in the middle, you get a kind of uh, coming a sort of slow sort of class consciousness, which are these clones realizing what their, what their purpose is on, on this base, um, and conscripting in in some way Gertie to help them out. Um, and I think that's very fascinating. And I think that one of the things that the cloning aspect does, you know, aside from, um, sort of adding a kind of, um, dystopian element to the, to the film is that it, literalizes one thing about capitalism, which is from the perspective of bosses and from, from the perspective of capital, all workers don't really have identities. They're interchangeable because as long as they can do the job, whatever it is about your personality or about your personhood doesn't really matter. What matters is the role that you play in the system. And what better way to actually take that to its logical conclusion than by just making every worker literally the same sort of human being as it were. So I thought that was actually like a really, like a really cool, uh, element to the film as well. Yeah. That's interesting. I mean, Oh, were you going to, what do you want to say? Pete, go ahead. Well, I'm always going to say something, man, go with it. I was, as you were saying all that, um, and Adam, you have much more interesting critiques of this film than I ever could. But one thing I was thinking about is really this in terms of exploitation. I think that a lot of the aesthetics of the film might get in the way of, Many viewers, not us, certainly not you, because you're very sophisticated about these things. But the, the, the sort of the way that his conditions are presented on the moon might get in the way of people using words like exploitation, because he actually has seemingly quite a pleasant life, and the the main flaw that we're shown is that it's all a lie, um, and that the clones do sort of age out and die every three years. But like his situation up there is seemingly fairly okay and and people wouldn't say exploitative because he's not like you know covered in soot all the time and stuff i think that's how we're, yeah. we're trained to read exploitation is that an interesting he, he's a lighthouse here? keeper though he's alone yeah no he's lonely and of course he that the clones do die and have to be re um you know re 
instated with the bodies that are stored underground as we see. But like, I guess my point is it's interesting that this film does not make the obvious moves like in a movie like Snowpiercer, for instance, where it's like, okay, this is obviously a wretched underclass, right? Yeah. And I actually, I kind of appreciate that it does that because I think that, um, you know, it, it's kind of easy to do the kind of classic Dickensian poor boy covered in dirt, uh, wretched of the earth kind of thing, which of course has its place within certain narratives and certain kinds of uh, genres. But I think that if you're going to do a film that is um, thinking about this, say at some stage down the road, I mean, so one of the things about that, one of the things that capitalism does do, and this is something that Apollo, like, you know, the apologists for capitalism often say is that it does eliminate uh, extreme poverty over time. Um, I mean, granted, that's all sort of relative um, when you think about the broader distribution of resources. But of course, um, absolute poverty has declined over the last 150 years um, as countries are slowly developing. But and As so, Mark said it would, by the way. Yeah. Exactly, exactly. And so, you know, you know, I live a pretty comfortable life. I make very little money as a graduate student. And like, yeah, my life isn't like difficult in like the way that you might think of it as being uh, for some sort of exploited worker. But I think what the film does do is that it, it captures the sense of the kind of uh, loneliness and kind of isolation that can kind of come with the kinds of labor that we're conscripted to do. So I, I, I don't think the film says much about the real Sam's decision to do this job, but you know, you, you see these shots of him sending videos home to his, his wife and he's getting videos of his daughter back. And there's a, a real sense of, uh, um, you know, his only interaction is with this, with this computer. And that's like a, a, a truly kind of, um, alienated existence. Um, whereas, yeah, he has a kind of comfy quote unquote aesthetic, aesthetically speaking, his life is fine. He's living in this, his quarters are kind of nice and he has music to listen to. Um, and you know, he can eat food and he can watch baseball games. Um, uh, cause he's getting feeds from, from earth or something, but, um, but the actual job itself, um, takes its toll on, on a kind of, uh, on a deeper level than, than his just sort of immediate, um, sort of physical existence. Yeah. It's very eloquent. I think this is, this is one of the most interesting explorations of what alienation really means and how it connects at a deep level to identity that I've seen. Um, certainly. And I, I think that's a really eloquent way of looking at it. I have a question for both of you. Um, a lot of my, I, well, uh, both of you are better equipped to look at this through a lens of Marxist critique than I am. Um, I'm on this podcast because, you know, I'm more interested in the moon aspects and the Marx aspects, obviously. But, um, a lot of what I'm seeing here and a lot of my visceral reactions to this film, because I, I mean, I did walk out angry. Um, it, it had a lot to do with my background in the corporate world. And my question is, um, have either of you had jobs where, um, the sort of dehumanization and the dismissal of the human side was, was this relatable? I guess is the question I'm, I'm trying to ask. Hmm. I mean, I've worked, 
So most of my jobs have been like service industry jobs. So all through college and undergrad, I worked, I mean, I actually had a pretty cool job in undergrad. I worked at a record store. It was like a little independent record store for like five years. Nice. Um, that is awesome. Which, which was fun, but it was also just sort of like we were being exploited in a way that was kind of cool. You know, we had the cool job, but like we got paid very little money and like, it was still sort of like, he, he often made it clear that if we protested too much, he had a stack of resumes that were pretty high and we could, we were pretty replaceable. <laughs> so like, you know, it was, it was fun, but it was also like in retrospect, I'm like, damn, that was actually kind of some of the stuff he did was kind of shitty. Um, but I, you know, I worked at grocery stores, bagging groceries, like stocking shelves. And, and I've worked at a couple bookstores and now I'm a, I'm a, I'm a teacher like at a, at a public university as a grad student. But, um, so nothing, I don't think I've ever really dealt with personally with that kind of, that kind of, I guess, ruling class, like directly, um, in terms of my, my, my boss or who I was reporting to. That's fair. Uh, how about you, Connor? I think what's, what's interesting for me as I was listening to Adam's answer and thinking about this. Um, so I, I've only had one extended period where I was doing what many would call a menial job, which is that I was working at a small local grocery co-op, and co-op's kind of a misnomer. It's really just a small hippie grocery um, in my hometown, and that was the lowest paid job I've had for an extended period of time. And yes, it was what we would call like low-skilled or low-skilled labor because I was, as Adam was talking about, stocking shelves, bagging things up for people, working the register, uh, carrying stuff in from the truck, all that work. What's interesting is that the bosses in that job were quite good um, and the conditions did not feel especially dismissive and certainly we were not treated as if we were expendable parts in a machine, at least insofar as that's possible to do under capitalism. And I think that there were even moments when I was like, if we treated some of these people as more expendable, things might run yeah. smoother around here. <laughs> but um, yeah, I mean, we've all had those moments in our jobs where we're like, would the bosses please get rid of this person? But like, you know, um, that was, it was kind of interesting where that, I didn't, I never had that feeling really. I mean, I resented, I resented that it wasn't paid very well and that like it was at a moment in my life where I was figuring things out after college and I would rather be doing something more glamorous but it, it really looking back on it was a good job in a lot of ways what is interesting though is that I've also done work that is much higher paid by the hour and that is uh, I've tutored I, I tutor a lot I've done a lot of that over the last few years and I've tutored some extremely rich people <laughs> uh, and the kids of some famous people and things like that and tutors had this interesting dual role where we are both in many cases, servants to a global elite and very much made aware that we are a level of servants and that we are expendable and that we have to get results and do things a certain way, often are put into impossible positions where it's like, you're not going to get the result you want. There's just no way. Um, but at the same time, because you get those jobs by having a fancy CV with all kinds of educational um, credentials on it and stuff, you you still you, you are still treated somewhat differently the way that... like. I could definitely tell when I was tutoring someone who's a member of a monarchic family that I won't name <laughs> geographically, uh, that I was being treated differently, certainly, than the guy who was bringing us tea down in the lobby of his luxury building, who was his, like, his menial servant, and I was like the, a different kind of servant. So it was this weird dual role where you're very much made aware by members of the absolute ruling class uh, what what place you occupy, but they're still, like, they're still a veneer of niceness or of even deference um, that is very disorienting and it's really why I'm glad to be not doing that anymore soon. Uh, yeah. I don't know if that makes sense to you guys, but yeah, it's, it's a, uh, <laughs> well, 
I, I don't want to go too deep in this because it's it's I if if you haven't experienced it, it's tedious. But I do want to call it out because I think a lot of our audience has had the same experience I have. There's a lot of modern jobs, and particularly modern jobs that center around, uh, say, call centers, where the big focus is on metrics. And so I've had a number of jobs where I would walk into a building, sit down, and I would talk to people all day. And the amount I talked to them was regulated. It couldn't be too long. It couldn't be too short. Um, I had to stay positive and engaging, but I couldn't do it to the point where we were talking about something like football. Like I had to keep it like we're having a fun conversation about uh, getting your Hilton miles corrected or whatever it is. And then if I place them on hold, I can only do that for a set amount of time and it couldn't be too long or too short. And so there's a lot of people who have these jobs where like I would I would literally talk for seven out of eight hours in a constant stream, but I would never talk to another person. Like I would be talking to a phone all day and not have interaction with the people behind around me. And that sort of by the numbers metric measurement of how you do your labor is very much a product of what was going on right around the time this film was made. Like the like the whole the the whole aughts up until the Occupy Wall Street time was really where this stuff was born. And so when I was watching this and seeing what they were doing to this guy and like the like the work he was doing basically as a lighthouse keeper, I, I mean, I could feel my arteries clanging shut because it, it is, it's an experience that so many people have. You're in this, this clean, pristine environment where everything you do is totally controlled and basically you are the product. I'm getting intense, aren't I? <laughs> no, no, no yeah. that's great, Pete. Um, that's very, very telling. Uh, and like the, just the, the affect. The fact that the affect that you had to have was a huge part of your experience and of the alienation of it is so important to bear in mind. I well, think. it's oh yeah, well, it's emotional labor in the actual sense of emotional labor, not emotional labor in the sense that like I have to talk to someone on the internet who disagrees with me, but like emotional labor on this right or be nice yeah, to your partner. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Or emotional, it's emotional labor in the sense that it's you're conscripted to perform a certain affect as part of your job at the at the point of you're sort of coerced to do it, or otherwise you'll lose your job. Oh yeah, and I've had all sorts of conversations where it's like. Uh, where I'm like, well, you know, I know you guys want me to do this. And they're like, no, 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 you don't understand. We want you to want to do this. Oh, yeah. And it's like, fuck off. You don't get to be in my head. Like, you're paying me for my presence. But that's not how they view it at all. Yeah, that's well, been a huge part of my experience tutoring, too. Sorry, what were you going to say, Adam? I was just going to say, that's like, um, that's like, not to get too psychoanalytic, but that's like the sort of logic of desire, which is, you you want to you don't want someone to desire you you want to you want them to want you to desire them back or something like this if that makes sense um, yeah so there's a sort of a doubling effect of of it's not that they just want you to do it it's that they all they want you to enjoy what you're doing as as well <laughs> absolutely yeah but I don't know I yeah. I, I think maybe <laughs> another direction we could take this because I think it's fairly obvious is the sort of environmental aspect of it. Um, because there is a sense in which the moon is kind of, you know, one of the things that capitalism is constantly running up against is, is, is sort of geography, which is it has to continually expand in order 
you know, it's always compelled to move beyond itself to seek new sources of profit. And so eventually it's like, well, yeah, of course, like the moon would be the next, I mean, it's literally outside of, of, of the planet. And so there's a kind of, again, you're kind of literalizing the sense of it sort of moving beyond itself in order to seek new profits. Um, so I think that's kind of fascinating. And I don't know if that, I mean, is this something that's, and maybe I'll ask this to you guys since you guys are, and maybe especially for Pete is that, you know, is this something that's sort of common in the hist- in the tradition of sci-fi? Is this riffing on some kind of genre convention or is this something that you would say is they're doing something new? Uh, well, genre convention certainly accepts the idea that moon colonization is a thing that's going to happen. And it usually expresses it in terms of a new proto-United States forms on the moon and breaks off from from the the overlords down on earth that's usually how it plays out but there's a number of authors that are very interested in the idea of helium 3 and what a game changer that would be so it's not they didn't pull this idea out of the air of of mining the moon for helium 3 and using that as the power source in fact it's something we're probably going to have to do if we're going to keep raising the stakes on how much energy we're going to consume on here and we don't want to just like burn every piece of coal uh, in existence down here. But, I mean, I think they did it in a fairly clever, matter-of-fact way. Like, they let us know what was going on with just, like, a commercial. Yeah. I loved that. I mean, it was such a a real way to connect to us in the way that we all understand and, uh, you know, unfortunately deal with every day. How much information do we get through commercial now? God knows it's a lot. Yeah. Did I even answer the question? <laughs> no, no, you did. You did. But I think that is also, I think it is a smart way to open the film, which is like it's a kind of information dump at the beginning of the film that doesn't feel um, totally didactic or sort of over explaining in the way that sometimes this kinds of stuff do. Um because it's because it's sort of done through the lens of a of a of a commercial. Um but yeah. Sorry, you were about to say something? Oh, uh, you completely dropped off for about a minute and a half, but it's really good to have you back. I assume you guys, could you two hear each other? I could hear him, so I think we're good. Yeah. <laughs> okay, then we're good to go, man. Gertie is messing with you uh, on your live feed. Um, yeah, that's, so like, the getting information through commercials, as you were talking about there, Adam, is, uh, or as Pete was, who was saying that? Anyway, well, Pete uh, said it, and we, then I kind of uh, picked up on it a little bit. Right. I, I was just thinking about like how we've moved kind of silently into the, there's been this profound shift in how commercials work where a lot of the most expensive ad buys by the biggest companies now are purely about making you fonder of their brand. And the reason for that, I would say, is probably because um, as capitalists consolidated, they have less actual competition and the, the threats they mostly face are just having scandals where they might get canceled. So they're like, ha, like I feel like half of the major commercials on TV are like, Facebook is your friend. Wells Fargo is your friend. Coca-Cola, we're your friend. <laughs> <laughs> well, and I think that's like the huge, that's like the huge appeal of social media and having all these brands sort of infiltrate various, you know, like a weird Twitter and, and, and other kinds of, you know, who was it that made the joke I want to die recently? Uh, one of those brands oh, made like a, like a death, like a, like a, you know, depression Twitter joke. And everyone was like, this is so great. And I think it was, was it Burger King? They've been doing the, like the pissed meal and the depressed meal or whatever. Like, yeah, that's, uh, yeah. yeah. 
Yeah. God, that's you, grim. <laughs> what What did you guys think um, in terms of just aesthetics? I think, um, so the film makes use of, particularly like when he's on the moon, he's, I think it's all modeling, right? It's like a small car with like a small stage that they just, that they're filming to make look big. Yeah. Yeah, I mean it's 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 clear that it's clear they're doing this on a fairly small stage, which makes sense because like it how how large are you going to make your your moon module that only has one guy in it? Yeah, but I you know, I just I thought that worked really well, especially the shots when he's like in the rover like, you know, driving around on the surface of the moon, which is like you know, the exterior shots are clearly just like a little car, probably like no no bigger than like a foot or two, uh, on like a small model of the moon with, with lighting. And, but it, 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 that kind of strangeness, uh, I think, um, works really well creating like the, the atmosphere of the film, which is, um, which is totally, I think the film has like an, just like an incredible atmosphere, which is also helped by Clint Mansell's score, which is, I think, haunting and incredible. It's one of my favorite film scores actually. Um, it's a score that I've I've listened to a lot over the last ten years since I first saw the film. I don't know if you guys are familiar with Clint Mansell's other work, um, but he did. I'm not. He did Requiem. He did a lot of Darren Aronofsky's films. He did Requiem for a Dream and Pi, and um, what was the one he did with Hugh Jackman? Now The Fountain. So oh, he's nice. A, yeah, he's a he's a really great he's a really great composer. He was a, initially like in I think in a, in a in a rock band in the eighties, and then had a has had a much more I think successful and kind of interesting career as a as a as a film composer. So I'm so glad we have you on to notice these things that we're not going to notice. <laughs> uh, that's a yeah. great point. I would add a couple things there about atmosphere. I just had a thought about the power of this genre, which is the sort of something goes wrong in an isolated space station, which is a very story genre, especially in film, sci-fi mm-hmm. film. And I think the good reason for that is to fast onto the idea of atmosphere. The cool thing about it is, and this shows up in movies like Solaris um, or some of the other like haunted space station ones that we've done, like Event Horizon. There's something really cool about doing it in space where you can be simultaneously claustrophobic and agoraphobic. Because you had the claustrophobia of isolation inside while you're surrounded by the vast, merciless, indifferent expanse of space, which is such a great, like, uh, contradiction to deal with. And I think that this movie stage does it very well. I would also want to bang the gavel a little bit for one of my hobby horses, which is you were getting at it, like, that sci-fi, I wish sci-fi filmmaking would just embrace old school practical effects, uh, which is what we're talking about. Um, you know, if they're actually modeling the little rovers, we'll just embrace that, embrace that relatively low budget look and don't worry about competing with the CGI spectacles. Like, I think we need more lower budget sci-fi movies that are not trying to compete with Marvel movies. Like, just don't, that's not your arena. Like, compete in a different yeah. arena, essentially. Well, and actually the the thing, what's, I think the film, this is one of the, be- the, the, the way that they do when Sam Rockwell's on the screen twice with the double photography, you know, the trick photography. Yes. I, that is so believable. Like it is very, like I've seen other films where you can kind of tell where the character or the actor isn't quite looking in the right direction or isn't quite like, it, you know, it just somehow looks a little off. Whereas this feels totally seamless um, for most of the film. I mean, I, I, there was no, no point where I really felt like, Oh, I can kind of see where the, where the, they shot the scene twice. 
Um, and I don't know if that's a testament to Duncan Jones or if it's a testament to Sam Rockwell's acting. Um, but it's just really like there, cause there was like an extended, that extended fight scene between them, which is really, really impressively done. Um, yeah. I think this is, well, the lack of CGI in general impressed me quite a bit. Yeah. Yeah. I think we're, we're reaching an anti CGI consensus, uh, in this podcast. <laughs> yeah. Um, we're getting very hipster and old school about this. This is actually well, it just where it never ages uh, well. It never ages well. Yeah. Or yeah. even in the moment, like, like I, I, there's so much modern CGI that forget aging well. It just doesn't look nearly as good as something lower intensity could now. Yeah. Well, I think what's really interesting about the the obsession with CGI is that it's a kind of disavowal of one of the fundamental tenets or of film, which is the suspension of disbelief. I mean, the whole point is that we go to films. And we know that what's on the screen is not real, but nevertheless, we watch it as though it could be real. And so practical effects kind of fit seamlessly into that, which is that we don't need it to look hyper-realistic because we're already suspending our disbelief that what's happening on the screen is real anyways. And so there's this weird uh, sort of tendency for for directors, and I don't know if it was if it's just the excitement of new technology, which is like, let's try to eliminate all of that and just make it hyper-real. And it's just like, no, we're already... We're already buying into the fact that this film, we're already buying into the universe in which th- this film is ostensibly taking place. Like, you don't need to add all of these other things to try to trick us or something. It feels very cheap to me. Um, yeah, I'm with you. Well, that's, that's just yeah. me. I, I don't want to be tedious about it, but I think part of the problem is a lot of these decisions are not being made by an artist designing a film to, to educate or inform. It's it's being designed by a group of people who are trying to maximize profit. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. And so, like, look through through that lens. CGI makes a lot more sense because, like, uh, people say they want things to be as realistic as possible. It's not an artistic choice so much as a financial one, I think. Yeah, I think that's, yeah, no, that's true. Um, there is, you know, the spectacle of... of that CGI can kind of do with the big, you know, especially with like the, the increase in, in disaster films that began really like in the nineties and, and also the big budget superhero films that are taking place now, like some of that stuff you just probably couldn't do with practical effects or they wouldn't be as, as sort of majestic or sort of sublime. Um, so I, I, I definitely, I, that's, that's definitely true. Here is where, um, I want to ask you, Adam, like, as I said, when I was introducing you, uh, there's so much I could say about your career because you've done so many different interesting things. Um, I know that you write fiction. You've also done a lot of really interesting nonfiction. Uh, is there anything that you want to talk about a bit more about your own work or plug? Well, um, I have a podcast, which you mentioned, um, and it's about nineteen. It's about the nineteen nineties. Um, so I co-host it with my best friend Andy, um, and we. So we grew up together, and there's been a kind of nineties nostalgia craze going on for the last I don't know how many years, um, and and that to us was really fascinating because you know the nineties are such a weird they're a weird decade, um, you know between the way we kind of describe it as like the long nineties between the fall of, uh, the Berlin wall and, and the twin towers, um, or the end of communism and the beginning of kind of, uh, post nine 11 terrorism. And where we didn't really, there was no foreseeable kind of 
enemy, as it were, or at least not one that we we sort of recognized in the way that we did with Russia and the way that we do now with something like ISIS or I don't even, do we even talk about ISIS anymore? I don't actually know. I guess Russia is the new thing, but. I can't um, believe that you are um, not giving Slobodan Milosevic his due here. Come on, man. <laughs> well, sure. I mean, of course, I don't want to say that there wasn't, but I mean, in the sense that like we weren't engaged in like a, that was kind of purely diplomatic. I mean, we did drop bombs on Kosovo and, and we, we definitely were sort of involved with, especially with Clinton, um, with, with the breakup of, of the Eastern Bloc. But like, I, I would say that we weren't in like an active conflict with them in the way that we were, uh, I mean, I, I put active in scare quotes in the way that we were with the Soviet Union in the Cold War. Um, oh yeah. And, and it was all TV spectacle too. I remember watching bombings of Iraq and Sudan and the Balkans yeah. on TV and being like, Hey, this is just a TV show. <laughs> yeah. Oh, totally. It was really the beginning of the, it was sort of the beginning of the sort of spectacalization of war. Um, and so, but also the nineties, you know, there is a kind of broader narrative, particularly among historians, that the 90s, and some economics economists would say this too, that the 90s were a very prosperous and relatively conflict-free decade, which I think is inaccurate um, because workers, you know, people often talk about like the, the, the booming 90s because this is the beginning of like the tech industry, like Silicon Valley, um, the dot-com era, et cetera, et cetera. And, you know, a lot of these narratives I think are really fuzzy and they're not they don't hold up well under scrutiny, but nevertheless, the kind of the kind of cultural artifacts that are being produced in the '90s, especially in film and also in music too, like new metal, some of the stuff that's coming out is it's very strange to go back to and listen to now because it feels it's really starting to feel like a different time, you know, uh, where it almost feels like I can't believe we liked this or I can't believe this was made. Um, so yeah, I don't know. It's it's well, been fun. I think that I, I I think that like you're totally right about the economic narratives of the '90s being relatively hollow or easy to pick apart. I do think that it's interesting to cast your mind back to an era when there was a lot of loose credit floating around for a lot of people, uh, and we hadn't quite fully understood the the what the long term effects of NAFTA would be, and it seemed possible to imagine that this sort of loose credit era would continue forever. And that was shattered right around the time that the moon came out. Right. Yeah. I mean, so, I mean, the, the, the narrative, the economics of, of really like the mid nineties to, to the two thousands you have, I mean, so one of the things that David Harvey talks about this in his book on neoliberalism and other, other smart Marxists have sort of noted this too, which is one of the things that made uh, American, prosperity possible in the 90s was the Asian financial crisis of 97 and 98, which uh, sent a bunch of capital to America for us to, to use, basically. So it freed up a bunch of capital, um, and we benefited from that greatly. And then in the 2000s, you had the, the recession of um, the sort of dot-com, bur- the bubble burst, but then you had the housing market because uh, housing was considered an asset that was that would never fail, basically. You know, we were lending people an enormous amount of money, so the speculation was made possible because people assumed mortgages were um, basically totally secure, even though we were lending people, poor people with really no money at all, 
um, mortgages for two years with a teaser rate of like, you know, some low rate. And then after two years, it would skyrocket. And of course, that's what precipitated the crisis, which is that all of a sudden, all of these mortgages, the teaser rates for all these mortgages went, you know, ended. And suddenly all these poor people were who sometimes had four or five mortgages because they were just it, giving them just people were just throwing money at them. Um, I, I was actually and, one of the guys throwing. Really? Yeah, I was a mortgage broker. I, when you're done, I've got a story about this I'd like to share with you guys. Oh, wow, please. No, no, that's fine. I mean, but I, I no, actually just go to that. That's actually really, that's awesome. I want to hear about that. Uh, okay, well, um, in, um, I, I mean, I, I played a lot of different roles in the crisis. I was, in, I was in a small shop mortgage broker thing, but I also worked for a larger corporation that rhymes with Hell's Jargo. Oh, okay. And, um, <laughs> what happened? I, w- I was in a call center, and if you looked at the the billboards and you called that one eight hundred number, you'd get me or somebody like me, and we'd set you up with a mortgage right there on the phone, which is a very new thing. But um, they were the everybody was expecting that the rates that we were getting were temporary. So like you were getting 6% and that was unbelievable and next month it was going to be at 7% and you'd better lock it in now or you are a moron. And there might have been somebody far above my head who thought that was was nonsense, but certainly we all believe that. But we were um we were labor that was uh like we knew we were temporary. We were making great money. But we knew that at any moment it could end. And what would happen is the rates would fluctuate up and down. So the rates would go up. And so the number of people calling the center would go down. And all the team leaders would get together. And they'd be like, well, we've got to fire 10% of our people now. And they'd all get together and talk about it. And on Thursday, they'd give us bagels. And on Friday, a bunch of people would get pink slips. Oh, and wow. then in a couple of weeks, rates would go down again, and they had to bring a whole bunch of other slack-jawed troglodytes in and train them on how to do what we've been doing. And to this day, if I'm working in an office and somebody brings bagels in, I'm like, holy fuck, I'm going to die. I have a, I have a <laughs> visceral panic reaction to free bagels. The bagel of death is coming for you. Oh yeah. Well, and they were just trying to like they were trying to salve their own consciences by bringing bringing food in before they terminate people because they knew it sucked. But that's not how we we internalized it at all. Wow, that's oh, that's, that's sick. brutal. <laughs> so I, I, I want to. I was going to ask you. Um, you we, that went some really interesting places about your podcast. Which, by the way, I don't think we said the name of it. It's called Stop Rewind Podcast, folks. If you're yeah, interested, the, st- the Stop Rewind Podcast. We have, we do have a Patreon, but we don't really have many patrons, and we're really bad at promoting it. So we don't really do. We're we're doing we do random things with it, but it's mostly just an excuse for me to kind of talk with my with my best friend about stuff. So. I love your show, man. I know that's something people say in these situations, but you know I listen to every episode. It's fantastic. Thank you. Thank you. I have my doubts sometimes about whether what we're doing is worthwhile, so it's good to hear. (laughs) Well, it's worthwhile to me. I don't know if that means it's worthwhile to you, but I'm loving it. That's good. That's good. Uh, Adam, you also have a book coming out, right? I do. I have a book. It'll come out in March, I believe, is the tentative release date. Um, it's called no home for you here. Um, and then the subtitle is a memoir of class and culture. So, and actually the podcast kind of emerged from, 
writing that book, which the book is kind of about my own upbringing. Um, you know, I grew up pretty poor for the first 11 or 12 years of my life. We were kind of stereotypical white trash, I guess you could say. Um, lived in a trailer park for a little while, and then we kind of slowly moved our way up. My father went back to college and got a job, and my mother became a realtor. And we sort of entered something like the middle class very briefly in the mid-90s, right at that moment. I was kind of saying 97, 98, when you know, the broader economy is doing really well. And, 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 um, but, uh, but then I, you know, my father, my parents split up and my father had a very tragic life and death. He was a alcoholic. He remarried, but his second wife died of cancer. And then he slowly, um, or very quickly, I should say, drank himself to death afterwards. And this was happening as I was entering graduate school. And then I, you know, I moved to New York. And so a lot of the, the book is kind of about the ways in which I growing up imagined would be my way out of like working class life or being like a white trash kid. Cause I had a lot of shame about growing up that way. And, and a lot of it had to do with, I bought into the kind of narrative that, well, if you just become a really smart guy, you know, if you become a, a smart sort of liberal, a kind of cultural elite, well, then that's all you really need to do because, you know, if you're not a dumb backwards idiot, that's, that's what's, that's like what's important. Um, and at a certain point, you know, it, it took me a long time and, um, the book ends with the death of my two friends, Gabe, who I was, who I mentioned earlier, who had cystic fibrosis and my best friend, um, Kevin, who died of a heroin overdose. And to sort of, I, you know, I began to realize that like these sorts of narratives actually aren't really dealing with class. They're dealing with culture. And so I, I really began to sort of think about the ways in which we think about class in terms of culture and not actually in terms of work or labor or the kinds of things that we're doing. Um, and for me, I think that's a, it's a huge mistake. And it's one of the things that I think is really plaguing a lot of our politics, especially like mainstream sort of left politics, liberal politics. Um, they think about things purely in terms of culture and they, and, and I think what that does is that it actually fractures the working class and, and it, it gets us to see, you know, I was kind of enticed to see people like my family members, for instance, who are not very educated. I was enticed to see myself as better than them or as, as somehow more deserving of them. And they were kind of enticed to see me as kind of an arrogant asshole. And for a while I was an arrogant asshole, but the point is that like, meanwhile, like a very small majority or a very small minority of the population is making a ton of money and, and all of our lives are getting shittier as a result. So the book is kind of dealing with all of that stuff, I guess. Well, that sounds like a much needed book in our moment. So, um, I'm sure we're all looking forward to it. That's really exciting, man. Thank you. Um, I think that's probably a fairly good place to leave it. What do you guys think? I think so. Yeah, I'm with you. Cool. Well, Adam, thanks so much once again. And thank you. I will say one one final time, thank you for, for editing all of our audio, including this. You get the chance to listen to it again. <laughs> I do. I get to listen to myself now, which is going to be... I always hate <laughs> listening to myself, so that'll be... <laughs> we thank you for making that sacrifice <laughs> for us. And as usual, thank you to our dear listeners. Yep. Take care, guys. Good to finally talk to you. 